Welcome to the Tailgate Podcast, the first and only marketing podcast focused on hunting and angling brands. We're two creative guys that are passionate outdoorsmen. Andy and I have been in advertising for a long time. Long time. We spent hours in the field together, hours on the river together. Mm -hmm. And after all that time outdoors, we'd find ourselves sitting on the tailgate with a couple of beers, talking about the advertising that's coming out of the hunting and angling world. Yep. So recently we had an idea. Let's turn these tailgate chats into a podcast. The Tailgate Podcast. We're sitting down with the creative minds the innovative thinkers, and the thought leaders in the hunting and angling industry. We'll talk about the creative ideas shaping our industry, the things that keep marketers up at night, and we'll compare notes on how we can all explore new creative ideas, new strategies to reach new audiences. Our goal is to inspire new ways our industry can band together to build a longer table, not a taller fence. Absolutely. This is the Tailgate Podcast. You know, Bill, it's so important right now, not only talk about brands, but how they show up in the industry, right? Absolutely. And today we are sitting down with Simon Roosevelt, a strong voice, advocate. Everybody knows his name. And just, in a lot of ways, I think, the conscience. I would agree with that. Right? I think so. The conscience. A growing conscience of the outdoor industry. Right. And he's not only, you know, a conservationist, but, you know, he's a a hunter. He is. He's an avid hunter. If I'm a brand... And I'm looking to find new ideas or to think about new ways to talk about conservation or talk about how our industry is showing up in the world. I want to pay attention to this one. I would agree. So, um, so Simon, you know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, you know, how you came into hunting. How did that happen? Uh, well, Andy, for me, I, I'd say hunting came from home, childhood curiosity, and experience. You know, when I was a kid catching sunnies or little brook trout, looking for salamanders and frogs under rocks, following streams, exploring the woods, you know, and I, all of that when I was young led to bird hunting and hiking and canoeing, climbing, yeah. anything outdoors when I was older. And then as I got older still um, and no longer had time to do everything, um, you know, you make time for the things that matter most to you. And for me, those are the things that bring me closest to the outdoors and furthest to feel. That's hunting, hiking, and fishing. Okay, yeah, I mean that makes total sense. But you know, on, on and, and and you know, on the conservation efforts, how did that become on a larger scale for you? I mean, obviously, with your, you know, your your background and your family history, I mean, that's that's big. But you know, how else did that? Did you feel like you were compelled to do that, or was that just something that was you know in your DNA? I mean, tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> well, I was compelled in one sense. Um, you know, when I was younger, uh, every morning there was a boot up my backside out the front door, um, and instructions not to return until, (laughs) until, until the sun started to go down. And so, you know, I I guess as in the old days, most of us, you know, we found things to do. Um, and for me, you know, the things that, that, the thing that always interested me most was, you know, was the outdoors, um, was exploring, you know, trees and critters and rocks and right, swimming right. in stream pools and stuff like that. Uh, so, Simon, y- you and Andy are currently working on a book on the state of hunting. Can you share a little bit about uh, what you have going on there? Sure. Um, happy to. <laughs> the objective of the book really is to illustrate you know, the connection between hunting and conservation. Um, 
historically hunters were among the first to understand the impact and extent of our overexploitation of natural resources. And I believe that hunters are still vitally important today for our system of conservation. Um, few people know, for example, that an excise tax, which was first championed by hunters, pays the bulk of most state wildlife agency conservation budgets. Uh, the same is true on the fishing side. Um, more importantly, I think, though, you know, beyond a financial stake, hunters are among the most closely connected to the outdoors, to wildlife and habitat, and that's really important. And so, you know, the principal objective of the book is to illustrate for non-hunters, and I think also to remind hunters um, why it is that in 21st century America, you know, hunting and, and fishing has you know, tremendous yep. social value still. Right. You know, I think, you know, to get back to, get to what Simon said, I mean, um, I think most hunters and anglers know about the Pittman-Robertson Act. I mean, most people know that, right? But I think that most of America doesn't know that, right? And I think that, do you think it's imperative that we let the general public know that? I mean, do you think that's a benefit or a detriment, Simon? I don't think it's detrimental. I think there are some that are concerned that if, for instance, uh, the broader outdoor industry were, or the excise tax that, that goes into the Pittman-Robertson segregated funds were expanded to include the broader outdoor industry, I think there are people that are concerned it would undermine uh, the hunter's claim to um, such an important piece of the conservation system funding equation. Mm -hmm. um, but I'm not concerned about that at all. I think I think that all people who use and enjoy the outdoors and care about it and make use of it should <clears throat> should have a way to contribute to that directly, and and everybody should be part of that part of that uh, part of that financial equation. Right. So talking about marketing here, why do you think it's important for hunting and angling brands to appeal to the general outdoor audience? Can you share some thoughts on that? Well, first of all, because they'll get more customers that way. But I think more importantly, because especially today, people interested in the brand are often interested in the values behind that brand. The most successful build companies, and I think you, know, you guys would know this better than I do, they build a culture, not just a product, um, and they're selling that as much as if not more than the specific, you know, or the specifications of the product. Um, you know, in the outdoor space, you know, relatedly, I saw Filson catalog recently, which had a great story woven throughout the catalog of what, you know, wildland firefighters do and the history of supplying the Forest Service. Um, so, you know, some people may just like the clothes because they're cool, um, but when they do, you know, when they buy them, they'll learn about that part of conservation and the issues involved. Makes total sense. What are some positive things you're seeing out there as of late in terms of, you know, trends and challenges and opportunities in the uh, hunting and angling space? Well, again, I, I think I like, you know, values-based ad campaigns. Uh, they seem to be more popular lately. You know, video content showing people using products to fix the life, which is really the start of communicating the values. On the other hand, I'm, you know, I'm also always wary of gadgeteering, which <laughs> is something Aldo Leopold complained about even 90 years ago. Right. So nothing, nothing new there in general. But you know, new technologies do, I think, run the risk of separating us from the skills and appreciation of the land, and they can raise ethical issues. Um, so, I mean, I'd like to see outdoor hunting companies put more emphasis in their ads on the hunt and less on the importance of a kill defining success. It, it isn't. 
you know, I think if hunters and the companies that sell to them want to increase participation and sales, therefore, you know, I think that means broader participation and not just the same folks buying more stuff. And that in turn means broader social acceptance of hunting. And the key to this, in my view, is explaining the link between hunting and conservation. Right, right. Well, you know, the thing that I really really like is the, you know, the risk of separating us from, from our skills and, you know, the skills and appreciation. So that, that to me really resonates with me, I think, when you said that. It's a, it's a, uh, it's a, it's a delicate balance and it's, I think, also an ever-changing one. Mm. You know, we all, we all grow and, and mature the more time we spend in the field and we follow certain things that appeal more strongly to us and we discard others. Um, as we gain more experience. And I think, at least in my own experience, the more I hunt, and this is probably not good for a marketing discussion, but in my own experience, the more, the more time I spend uh, outdoors, the less I feel that I need. Mm. Interesting. Really interesting. Um, you know, you've mentioned that we need to find new narratives uh, around conservation. Can you, you know, elaborate a little bit more about that? Sure. So I, I guess, well, maybe I should be asking you for help with some of that, but because um, I'm certainly not a marketing whiz. But um, I do think that conservation could grow stronger and faster if hunters found a way to appeal to non-hunter conservationists. Yep. Mm-hmm. While at the same time, we're trying to grow the number of hunters. Mm-hmm. Um you know, the non-hunters are already numerous and active, and I think if we could sell the power of unity, so to speak, with other conservationists on some issues, I think we could break down some partisanship and solve some problems on the ground. Absolutely. That's really yeah. what, what we're all aiming for. You know, I think, to me, a key to this is really the ethic of fair chase, and that's the logical path that we should all be following. Yep. You know, 100 years ago, virtually every big game species and and lots of others were hugely depleted. Um Yet somehow hunters managed to convince non-hunting societies that hunters were the ones who could restore and replenish our wildlife. And you know, we did that by creating and spreading the ethic of fair chase. Uh, that fair chase emphasizes the value of and respect for wildlife and land. You know, this is a conservation ethic that most people um, and Americans, you know, including non-hunters, understand because it parallels the way other, you know, other lovers of the outdoors, however they may enjoy it, um, you know, care about it. Yeah, I totally agree with that. I mean, the fair chase is, uh, I think it's becoming more and more into the uh, vernacular in our sport, you know, every day. I mean, you're hearing about it all the time. Would you not agree, Bill? Absolutely. Or not enough. Or not enough, right. Agree, and we need to do more. I think what we really, what would benefit hunting, and I think, you know, by extension, the outdoor industry is, and I, I, I agree entirely, is, Really, a, a, a definition of hunting uh, or modern hunting as fair chase hunting, and a defining away almost of other other practice hunting practices which are which are not fair chase. Right, and and you mean differentiating that because you don't want to be lumped into that because you know you're not going to garner support if you're lumped in with the other people that are doing things that are that you deem not fair chase is that do you agree with that well i suppose i do i mean what i mean mostly is i don't um i won't take it upon myself to cast cast aspersions on what others do or don't do but i think there's a difference between hunting and shooting and hunting to me is defined by 
fair chase practice. Yep. Mm-hmm. Climate change. It's a difficult, difficult topic. Uh, what are your thoughts? Climate change is a difficult topic, but it, I don't think it ought to be. I think there are few, if any, observant people who spend time in the outdoors who don't believe that the climate is changing and rapidly. I suppose people may reasonably argue about the measure of human contribution. Um, but for me, it comes down to the fact that there's clearly enough academic weight on the side of causation to do something, um, to be taking action. I think part of the problem is that we're not really having a policy debate in America about climate change. What we're having is a political debate. Amen to that. And I think that debate's really about economics. That's a great point. Um, And like many of today's political debates, it's cast as a zero-sum, winner-take-all contest, which means it's fought with hyperbole and slogans rather than you know, a, a helpful discussion. You know, one side says cost is no object. This is existential. And the other says, well, it's going to bankrupt us all individually and as a nation. And I think pretty much everybody knows that neither one is correct and neither is really helpful for the country. So, you know, everyone has a stake in this and changes are already affecting game species, water quality, birds, you know, everything up and down the chain from, you know, plants and bugs to, you know, apex predators. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, we should acknowledge that, you know, the country has moved regardless of the direction of political winds. You know, we are doing things. You know, corporate America has changed. Individual America has changed. Um, I think even in the current administration, we, we, um, there's probably more things and there, there are likely more things going on than, um, <clears throat> and things that have been put in place that continue, um, that are, you know, that, that are moving us at least in the right direction. I think most of us believe that we're not moving fast enough or far enough, but I think we are making some progress and certainly the culture in the country has changed. Um, you know, climate change is a huge topic of conversation. <clears throat> but I think, um, I think we need to understand the costs of meaningful incremental change, you know, and, and yeah, you know, worst case scenario, you know, if we're wrong, our investment will have made things better for wildlife and, and lands and right. better safeguarded right, right. our future for coming generations. Yeah, I mean, it's a very sobering subject. I mean, it's very sobering mm-hmm. uh, what's going on. And it's, um, I think of any any sportsman out there, hunter, angler, it's like you said to your point, we're acutely aware of what's going on out there. I mean, it's, um, I mean, we see it every time we go outside. I, I can't be... I'm afraid of what, where it's going, but also I think that, you know, it's, there's a tide change and it's happening, you know, but it's, it's not a very pretty one. No, and I think it's not, I mean, this isn't a political discussion, but I think it's, you know, it's not enough for us to say, well, we'll do something when China does something. Right. So, you know, we have, we have a vast store of, um, of really incredibly rich natural resources in this country. And, you know, we we protected those and for our enjoyment today by taking a long term view and, and climate change is really about taking a long term a long term view. And democracies generally speaking aren't great at making long term decisions, but from you know, from my perspective this is really something that we need to be <clears throat> we need to have more we need to have more focus on and more action on. So what is something few, if any, 
know about your great-great-grandfather's role and ideas in setting aside public lands for future generations? Um, well, I suppose that, um, uh, that his ideas on conservation at the time weren't, weren't always very popular. Um, they were often widely and loudly criticized. Um, but I think it's fair to say that on matters of conservation, he's been proven correct. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, I think we enjoy the, the benefits of, uh, of those views today. And I think, you know, it should be said, I think he saw his role as a conservation leader, not as making everybody happy, um, but in convincing enough people of disparate views that the necessity of advancing conservation warranted cooperation required it. Um, and we just, we have not enough of that today. Right. I mean, you imagine, you know, the famous picture of, or you can see the famous picture of, you know, John Muir and, and TR on a, on their camping trip in, in Yosemite. Right. You know, they certainly had mm -hmm. uh, different views on on many things. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, can you imagine that the head yeah. of SCI going camping yeah. with the head of the Sierra yeah. Club today? Good point. That's a great. I don't point. think yeah. so. <laughs> what are a couple things you, you you think marketers in the hunting and angling world need to think about as they're building the brands for the next generation? Uh, well, I think that the key to that really is is sustaining hunting and fishing for the next generation, and that's broader social acceptance. And I think that depends on better demonstration by the hunting community and by the outdoor industry of you know, our conservation ethic. I think if hunting and angling marketers can promote and thereby help build that, they'll be building their next generation of customers. A second thing I think is that most non-hunters have either no or frankly very wrong ideas about most types of hunting. So how we talk about hunting shouldn't confuse them further. Right. You know, instead, we should be clear about good hunting practices and importantly, not support bad ones. Absolutely agree. Yeah. I, yep. Absolutely agree. You know, defining hunting or defining modern hunting as as fair chase hunting, um, I think, is is an important key to that. Um, and defining equally, defining a way, and by that I don't mean to to or cast judge or pass judgment on it or you know or or hunting is the you know the pursuit of a wild animal where you know in which that animal has a fair chance of escape and um, the hunter doesn't have an improper advantage um, mm -hmm. in the pursuit of that animal and I think there are types of hunting or things that are called or known popularly as hunting today that aren't that that are not true to that to that ethic and I think those things, again, while not casting aspersions on them, I think those things should be defined as something other than hunting. I absolutely agree. You know, we need to remind ourselves that the marketing is actually probably one of the first things that someone new to this world is, is likely to see. So, I mean, there's a, I put a lot of responsibility on what, what brands put out in the world. I mean, there, there's, a, you know, there's probably a decade of, of uh, you know, of polling and market research, which which consistently demonstrates that non-hunting American attitudes support hunting when you just when it's described as um, or consistent with fair chase. That is, um, you know, hunters pursuing uh, you know wild animals um, and without you know without an unfair advantage of technology or or otherwise. And making, you know, making sure that the animals are respected by, you know, by using those animals, by, you know, by, by feeding themselves. Right. 
uh, and making use of the of the skins and things like that. Right. I you know. Yeah, you know it's interesting. I I don't know if I told, ever told you this story, Simon, but um, I did a I did a project for a, a large Fortune 500 con- you know company, and uh, you know they were asking me when I when we wrapped the job, they said, "What are you doing?" I said, "I'm going to go bird hunting back to Idaho." You know, um, that's what I do. I work so I can bird hunt, and uh, and they were saying, "Well, really? Do you um, you know?" So she asked me, she "said Do you eat it?" And I go, "Well, of course I do." So you know, to your point, I don't think. I think a lot of people think we just kill. Mm-hmm. We don't eat what we, you know, what we harvest. And uh, I think we need to do a better job of that, right? Um, because a lot of people just don't, they think that um, we're just out killing things, right? For for lack of a better term, right? And uh, we need to do a better job. I mean, I mean, I'll just call it like I see it. I think there's just a lot of, you know, a lot of stuff out there is just pure kill porn. If a killing is to your point, if killing is the win, I mean, that can hold us back. Defining, redefining, you know, hunting as the hunt and not the kill is really important um, in terms of gaining broader social acceptance for hunting or regaining broader social acceptance of hunting. You know, the word, the name Roosevelt, just, it just, I don't know how to say this, but it just, every person, every human being, especially Americans, and it, it really kind of, it resonates with them, you know, really deeply in a spiritual way. And um, and I know you don't like talking about yourself because, you know, I've spent enough time with you. But, you know, <laughs> what do you hope your legacy will be in the next hundred years from now? What do you, what do you hope uh, I'm that will sure be? I'm not sure that I'm too flattered to to uh, to think that you think I'm old enough to, to care about things like that, Andy. But, <laughs> yeah. Andy's a, he's judging I'm an old man. He, yeah, you are old, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, now that I look at you. Sage advice. You're pretty old. Well, I guess I guess what I'd say is, you know, I care deeply about this country's land and its wildlife, and I love hunting for the closeness of the connection to those things that it brings me. And, you know, if what I do can help to maintain and enhance the great legacy that belongs to all of us, then I'll be satisfied with that. Amen to that. Right. Wonderful. Love it. <laughs> so what's next for Simon Roosevelt? What's on my dance card? What's on your dance card here? He gets to spend some. He, he gets to spend some really awesome time with yeah. me. Yeah. <laughs> Number one is quality time with Andy. Yeah, there yeah, you go. No. That's, <laughs> no, we'll, we'll talk about that later. You know, there's always more to learn. So, you know, for me, that's more time outside and more places to explore. There's always more to do. So, I'll keep working on trying to get people to enjoy and care about the outdoors in different ways. To accept that there are other ways to do that, um, which are socially valuable. And there's a book to finish. So on the fun and work side, you know, this fall uh, is coming up fast. And that's, you know, my favorite time of year, perhaps. It's the time when I get to spend most time afield. And I'll, I'm going to be looking forward to uh, a couple of upcoming trips with Andy. We'll be going, um, uh, we'll be going out to the Rogue River in Oregon, uh, to the wilderness out there and doing some, some hunting and fishing together. It's beautiful. Yeah. That's a river trip, right? We've got a couple of other things in the yeah. hopper too. So um, I'm really looking forward to that. Well, as, as long as Andy, Andy doesn't row, I think you should be in good shape. So actually, actually, uh, yeah, you do not want me. You don't want me rowing. No, you don't want me rowing. Yeah. Well, it'll be a short trip. Um, well, Simon, you know, you're prolific. You have so much going on. We can't thank you enough for taking, you know, some time to sit down with us here and talk ideas. Yep. I'd say that it, I think it really is true that people today are looking for, they're looking for the values behind the product. 
you know, again, the most successful companies, that's, that's what they do. And people care about that stuff. So, and I think that, you know, I think that you are, I think you're really onto something. So thank you. Thank you. All right. All right. Thanks, Simon. Thanks, Simon. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Tailgate Podcast. If there is anything keeping you or your marketing department up at night, we'd love to hear from you. Shoot us your thoughts and your questions to questions at thetailgatepodcast.com. That's questions at thetailgatepodcast.com.